the great rebellion to save the economic fabric of Australia. And all the war party can do is lie. Coming up on this week's episode of the Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 7th of September 2023. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome yeah, Craig. Thanks Robbie. Alright, in this week's um, Citizens Report we're going to discuss uh, this great rebellion that's um, it's actually quite widespread, Craig, in, mm. in many ways, including we're going to bring into the Australia Post issue because the, the essence is of the rebellion is are we going to save corporate power from dis, um, uh, destroying essential services? Right? That's what's happening, and it's banking services, it's postal services, it's other forms of services, um, but the fight back is, is very, very important, and that's, that's underway. Um, and then we've got some, some uh, breaking examples of the kinds of lies that just roll off the tongue of the people that are pushing Australia closer and closer to a war of annihilation with China. Um, before we begin, uh, as usual, please... One of the ways you can help get this, this show around on social media is to make sure you like it, share the show um, as, as much as you can through email and other social media. Um, if you're not a subscriber, please subscribe. And remember, when you do, to ring the bell icon to be notified of, of updates that are not just the weekly show but other things we put up on YouTube. Um, please comment below and participate in the um, conversation. I get accused of neglecting the conversation, Craig, but it's not true. I actually do. <laughs> Weigh in um, as my time allows. Um, Which is quite scarce. Sometimes to thank people for their comments, sometimes to pick a fight, uh, decide which one you want me to do. <laughs> I'll have a go at you. Um, and then also, please, we are not commentators, we are activists. Everything we do and talk about is about what we're trying to change in this country. So please. Uh, Click on the donate button below and help us out that way as well. Yeah, join the 12,000 people that contributed last year to help us raise the funds necessary to have you travel all over the country again. <laughs> that's the secret superpower of the Citizens Party, and that's not, that's not an exaggeration. Our, uh, our strength, Craig, is the broad base of our support. Yeah that no other party can actually match in the way that we have. And when I say support, it's, it's real support. Um, it doesn't show up as much in the polls, right? But in terms of people that are prepared to dig, dig deep and help out this effort, because we don't just wait for elections. We're, changing, we're fighting to change policy now, influence the policy debate, and people see that and get behind it, and that's what makes a difference. Um, so let's talk about the latest manifestation of that. The Great Rebellion to Save the Economic Fabric of Australia. And I've chosen those words carefully, Craig, because that is actually what's at stake here. But I'm going to give a bunch of little predicates and put them all together, the picture will emerge. Before you jump in there, Robbie, I want to point out to the, to the viewers that, you know, back in 1995-96, we did some fundamental work to, to show who was destroying Australia. And we published a newspaper called what we call the Mont Pelerin Paper, and we did fundamental research that showed that over the course of the 1970s, there was a takeover of the entire economic fabric of Australia by this insidious group that wanted to promote all these policies of privatisation, economic rationalism, 
small government and other things like drug privatise, uh, drug uh, liberalisation and all that sort of stuff. Now, we talked about that in 1995. And what you're seeing, what I believe we're seeing now, is you have a whole generation that has developed under the idea that that's how economics works. Yep. And they don't have a, a historical memory of how actually an economy can work where you put the general welfare first. Yep. And what we're dealing with, the attitude we're dealing with, is pure bastardry because it is consistent with the ideas of theft which is what the whole Montpellier Society was about, steal from the public purse in order to line the public, uh, the private uh, coffers. Yep. You see that in the banking system, you see it in the regulators, you see it in the insurance companies, you see it in every aspect of the fabric that you're talking about. And people are sick of it. And yep. what, you're saying, what we're starting to see is a rebellion. But that rebellion has to have depth and it has to have understanding and we can provide that understanding in depth for people when they start to look at our material from... 1995. Yeah, now the that, people are, very good point, Craig, the people are rebelling against the symptoms of the problem now. They get that, that this is a real problem. A quarter of a century later, the, what we exposed back then, the consequences are on display for the world to see, yeah. and people are, uh, are rebelling. What we've got to do is expand it to rebel against the cause of the problem, identify the cause, and it's one of the reasons that we have a, a flagship policy of a national bank, a government bank, because... We're bringing the institution of government back to what it should have always been. And it's, we can say government of, for, and by the people, but what does that mean? And it's one that actually delivers for the people. And we bring back this thing called the public good or the well, common good. This is what we've been And still- that's what this Montpellier and Society and all its splinter think tanks, the ones in Australia, like the Centre for Independent Studies and the Tasman Institute and the Institute of Public Affairs, that's what they all... Um, Took, decided to take down this concept of the public good. There is no public good. There's only the extreme individual version of society. Or as Margaret Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society. Well, when you break it down, and because a lot of people would entertain that idea, but you know, you don't know what you've got till it's gone, right? When you break it down and you see what ha- the consequences collectively for what happens when people lose these things that are supposed to support us all then you realise, well, hang on, that philosophy we, we dabbled with for a while right, has been very destructive. Well, it's one of the things back in 1988, Robbie, which was before the Commonwealth Bank was sold off and privatised. Now, it was only a few years later. Yep. The Citizens Party, then called the Australian, the Citizens Electoral Council, came on the scene. And one of the key uh, policy planks was to re-establish you know, a more uh, important Commonwealth Bank to go with this idea yep. of creating credit. Now, we've had that policy ever since our inception in 88, right? So we haven't deviated. No, in it. fact, we've just de- we've deepened it to it's write new legislation and so forth. It's been the, the flag on the centre flag And pole. the public post office bank is yep. another aspect A of this, of is it. one part of it. So when, when you look at our, uh, our, our track record and all of our publications, you'll find there's a, this, that is the consistent theme. Without having control of your own credit, you know, he who owns the gold owns the rules, right? Unfortunately, in our country, we've completely and utterly abrogated that to the private, greedy banking dictatorship in this country, and there is a rebellion. That's a good thing to see about. All right, it. now let me get to the point, to the to the show. <laughs> but by segueing through an ad for the Australian Alert Service, the latest alert service, um, because this latest one, Craig, actually covers two of the things that you just referenced. 
One is, there's an excellent article on the back here about the Bank of North Dakota, and it's the only public bank in America, and it makes North Dakota the most successful state in America. But there's also a little thing here called, the, uh, Elisa Boat wrote, called Political Amnesia, which is actually describing the a version of what you said about we've got a generation that knows no different, right? And that's actually really, really dangerous. Um, and she's talking about that in relation to things like the PwC scandal, but also the way the media works, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, if you'd like to get that, um, just call in and get a copy if you haven't received one before. Otherwise, um, what you should do is get a subscription to the alert service. But let's go through some of the details of where things are at right now. I just wanted to highlight some examples. One is, which is close to my heart, rental stress. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, no, no, this is really important. So Martin North, who's a friend of the show, um, and I'm a friend of Martin North's show on digital finance analytics. Um, Martin uh, does the best economic survey in Australia. And the way Martin North's digital finance analytics survey goes is he surveys 1,000 households a week. And over the course of a year, there's a different 1,000 households and there's 50,000 households get surveyed for the year. And so this is incredibly comprehensive survey. And by doing it every week like that, he can track start these, these uh, changes that start to emerge, then they really emerge. And we'll put his latest one up on the screen. Um, this is a chart that he put out. It's breaking news a few days ago. Rental stress in Australia has absolutely gone off the chart to 70% of all renters are rental stressed. And the reason I said it's close to my heart is I've been told I have to move out of our home because I rent. Um, and I'm now in the rental market in Melbourne and yeah, in the, it's dog eat dog out there. I you're tell in you. the rental queues. The rental queues, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, and, what it, and, and, and we don't have to say much more about that except that this is, a, this is the, the, the fault of the banks and the Reserve Bank and the governments who let these institutions off the hook to create a bubble. They created a bubble to fatten their profits and the economic fabric of Australia has a massive hole in it called affordable living, mm. affordable accommodation, affordable housing, right? Um, that's one aspect of it. Bank closures. This is our, our favourite theme lately. See, National Australia Bank has announced two more closures just in the last couple of weeks. One is this Waruna Shire in Western Australia. Um, another one is Ocean Grove down past Geelong. Um, and one closure that escaped us at the time, but it's, it's happened, is Gosford. And why I want to highlight these three, because until now, until and before the Senate inquiry really got started, the banks got away with this excuse that nobody's visiting branches, these things aren't being used, people, they're not profitable, therefore we've got to close them. And the people of Australia, you know, it's like everyone who went to a bank branch for service and discovered it was closed down, you know, and is spewing and saying, blah, 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 why has this had to happen? But then they, think, they must have been thinking, well, why am I, oh, you know, it's had to happen because I'm the only person in this country that ever wants to use a bank branch anymore. And that's what they got away with giving the, the public that impression, and it wasn't true. It was not true at all. And we're getting more and more reports. We talked about the show last week of the massive queues people are finding every time they go to a bank branch now. The demand out there is huge. These are liars. These banks are just utter, utter liars. But thanks to this inquiry process, they've been caught out with their lies. Well, NAB is so damn arrogant, it's not even trying anymore because 
What they have been doing is sending out these fact sheets to branches for the last year or so saying, hand on heart, it's breaking our heart, we have to close you because visitations are falling, transactions are falling, etc. See, it's not viable to keep the branch open. The first lie they were caught out in was they didn't measure any of the visits that didn't involve transactions. And they had to admit that. We've talked about that on the show recently. But now, if you look at the fact sheets for these branches of like Ocean Grove and Gosford, these are booming branches, Craig, servicing towns of 18,000, 25,000 people. Transactions are going up, not going down. And the bastards are closing them anyway because it was never anything to do with that. It was all about their digital agenda, the... And this is really this really gets me going, and I'm writing something about this at the moment. The, when you see a bank and look at the executive structure of banks, those people are temporary. They're moving in for a few years, and then they're going to be moving on, fattened by the bonuses they make now. And those people now have decided we're going to go digital because we can fatten our profits by going digital. We will force the public to go digital with us by taking away the alternatives regardless of the consequences, yep. regardless of every old person who ends up getting scammed by someone in India because they couldn't use a bank branch anymore, regardless of the small business people, who the, the ones who have accidents on long drives and kill themselves because they've got to drive 200 kilometres to the next bank to bank their takings because the bastard bank closed the one in their town for no good reason. And the banks in their ivory towers in Sydney and Melbourne, they don't care about that, right? Not at all. And it's all based on a lie. And these latest closures prove it. These are lies. They're shutting booming, absolutely booming bank branches. This is them ripping apart the economic fabric of Australia. And before you get mad at the banks... Get mad at the politicians who sit there on their hands and let them do it. They're the ones who serve us, not the banks, but they're the ones who have let the banks become an oligopoly. And so they're the ones who should be saying to the banks, no, you are there to provide a service, right? So that's the banking one. They're not even pretending anymore. This is, Robbie, look, this is exactly what Ben Chifley warned about yep. in the 1930s when he wrote a dissenting report to the uh, Banking Royal Commission that he was part of back then, what you ex just expressed is exactly yep. this nexus, this, this, this interface, I should say, between the idea of the public good and the private greed. Now, the Great Depression did not have to happen, but it happened because of the greed of the banks. What we're seeing today is the same dynamic based upon the, the, the greed of the banks, the greed of private corporations saying we're going to gouge and screw the population as much as we possibly can because we're allowed to get away with it. Yep. Now what Shifley says is no, he wanted to nationalise the banking system for the public good and it was the NAB that led the massive fight then against Shifley. And the argument for nationalisation, Craig, wasn't communism. No. In fact, no, he was no. a quite an anti-communist, Ben Shifley. It was that the essence of banking, this part of banking is is the equivalent of a utility. Just like the water, most Australians, because we're not, we're not an extreme privatised, we weren't. Just like the water most Australians want in public hands, the, the electricity, we've been screwed ever since it's been privatised. We all recognise it was better in public hands. The flow of money, the tap of credit 
should not be controlled by people who make the short-term decisions for their maximum profit. It's for the common good. That was the, that was the essence of the argument. And even then, he only did it when it was forced on him, right? Mm. But back to my complaint about the politicians. The politicians are sitting on their hands are the ones who are the ones you talked about who were brainwashed 25 years ago by this Mott Pelerin BS, right? And they're the ones who just don't even think that there's a problem until that's why we're talking about a rebellion because it's, it's starting to be forced on them. But I wanted to get to the more, um, a sort of a, a newer case. You've heard me rant about banks before. <laughs> Let's talk about Australia Post because the latest profit and loss statement of Australia Post came out last a week ago, right? And the headline is Australia Post has made its second loss in its corporate history. Its corporate history began in 1989 when it was corporatized, right? And since 1989, it has been required to operate commercially as a corp, as a wholly government-owned corporation, but operate commercially and make a profit. And the government gets that profit in the form of dividends, anything that's not reinvested, right? That's the Australia Post model now. And part of that was a quasi-privatisation, which is, it's a form of privatisation, but this is where they, 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 they privatised out the most of the post offices to these um, small businesses. Hmm. And they're called licensed post offices. And although, in principle, we're against privatisation, at least they were, they were sold to small businesses who can run these with all the care of a small business person and not to some multinational or whatever, right? Um, and so the licensed post office group that the Citizens Party has got to know in the last few years has provided some real insights into what's been going on here. So anyway, headline, two, second loss um, in its history. $200.3 million was the loss. The last time it made such a loss was 2015, and it was a $222 million loss. And that was under Ahmed Fahor, who was the CEO at the time. Both losses are similar, Craig, because both losses are being blamed on Australia Post's mandate to supply essential services. And it's called the Community Service Obligation, CSO, because when they, when they corporatized it, they gave it this, the government gave it this Community Service Obligation, said, these are the parameters operate commercially, make a profit, but you must provide this service. And the service was daily delivery of letters, that's the community service obligation on letters delivery, and a minimum number of post offices around Australia. And so Australia Post has over 4,000 postal outlets. It has to be a, a certain number of post offices within a certain distance. Of, of within a certain distance and, of people. and a minimum number. There's a, there's a minimum number overall and a minimum number in the regions. Yeah. Right. So there's 2,850 post offices by law in regional Australia. And that's what gives Australia Post, if you've seen the map review that Australia Post used actually, and we've used it, it it's got, you see all the dots of, of postal outlets that's what gives Australia Post the best retail footprint in Australia, that community service obligation. Um, Ahmed Fahor used the loss back in 2015 to argue that the service, the essential service Australia Post provides should be scrapped. Now, and also, the, one thing about the essential service is the letters part of Australia Post service obligation is a monopoly. So parcels which Australia Post does now, and it's very profitable for Australia Post, it does that in competition with other parcel delivery services around the country. Letters, though, is a monopoly because this is the essence of the government service, yeah. which still owns Australia Post. 
And this is is how post offices developed over the centuries, where the government said in all countries around the world, we will provide a service to guarantee your communications get to where they need to go, right? And that's why Australia Postal has that obligation. So the two things are the letters and the the, the number of post offices. For Hoare, use the use the letters, use the losses to blame it on the letters and said we want this scrapped. Um, now, last Friday, the Financial Review, though, in reporting about Fahor's loss in 2015, it said this point, made this point. This is the quote. While the business, that is Australia Post, recorded a $222 million loss under former CEO Ahmed Fahor in 2015, that loss was stacked with $190 million in provisions for redundancies and other one-off restructuring costs. And that's, just, that's the Fin Review reporting what everyone knew at the time. You don't hear that on the Channel 9 News, Robbie. No, this you was a contrived loss. loss, right? This was a contrived loss. Um, it was rigged, in other words, because they needed an excuse to push ahead with um, scrapping the, the community service obligation, the part that serves us, and... Essentially, and eventually privatisation, that's where they wanted to go. Well, history is repeating itself because we've got the same thing, a loss by Australia Post, the same culprit. They're blaming letters and the number of post offices. And in fact, they're already reducing the number of post offices, Craig, because they're a bit over the minimum at the moment. So they're rapidly, like our local one we've been talking about, Glenroy Post Office, right? They're reducing that down to the minimum and lobbying really hard to reduce the community service um, obligation. But we've got evidence that the loss has also been contrived. This loss, like the other one. And, and we, only have a, we don't have evidence how it's been contrived, but we have evidence that it has been contrived. And I just want to give you some figures from the last year to show you there's something afoot inside Australia Post, something dodgy happening. There's lies being told deliberately to, to, to blame the letters. So on paper, yes, the letters are making a loss, but the loss is steady. So what they, if you look at the Australia Post performance for last year in two halves, in the first half, Australia Post letters delivery lost $189.7 million. So that was the loss for the first half of the year. In that first half, Australia Post made a profit of $23.6 million. So even though they had a loss of $189 million on the letters, the overall operation still made a $23 million profit. And their turnover is something like $7.4 billion. Uh, yeah, the total, the total revenue is $8.9 oh, $8. billion. Dollars, yeah, wow. Right? That's on total revenue, $8.9 billion. So $189 million uh, in letters losses, but it's still a $23 million profit. But in the second half, the letters losses barely changed. They increased by $5 million. They went from $189 million to $194 million. That's all. $5 million increase. But the overall losses exploded to $223.9 million in the second half. So if the letters loss didn't expand by very much, just $5 million, but the overall loss exploded... How can you blame the letters for the losses? Which hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. Something happened to make that explosion in losses that they're trying to blame on the letters. Now, one insight 
into this comes from the person who knows Australia Post better than anybody and, can I say, cares for Australia Post better than anybody. Because between Ahmed Fahor and the current management of Australia Post, who, by the way, the current management of Australia Post come from Woolworths, McDonald's and the banks. That's who the current management of Australia Post comes from. And they're these temporary managers as well. They're going to be, they've moved in for four or five years and then they'll move on and they're making short-term decisions now to maximise their bonuses, right? Their profits and their bonuses. So these, um, uh, between them, between these two manifestations of management, there was a different kind of manager. And her name was Christine Holgate. And Christine Holgate, and nobody can deny this, had a totally different approach to this question of how do you, of the tension between Australia Post being profitable and having to honour this community service obligation. And her, her philosophy was the community service obligation is sacrosanct. We are here to provide a service. Instead of um, asset stripping Australia Post, preparing it for private, downsizing and preparing it for privatisation, her view was let's grow the business to um, fund the expansion of services. That was her view. And guess what, Craig? She did it. It's the reason Australia Post has been profitable ever since Ackman Fahor. And what was her landmark deal to do it? She got the banks to pay a lot more money for Bank at Post. She, she made expansion of banking services the central part of what she wanted to do. And she did a whole bunch of other things as well. And the only time she got involved in this question of contracting the community service obligation because people will come back at me and say that, was, was during COVID, COVID yeah. right? COVID changed everything for everybody in 2020 and Australia Post under her requested a, um, a suspension of the community service obligation because of all the uncertainty of having people out every day. So that was the only time that happened. In general, her principle was expand the, the, the business to fund the services, the services are sacred. And so in the Australia Post modernisation review that's just been underway, you can see the submissions and the contrast between Christine Holgate and everybody else is extraordinary. First of all, Australia Post made a submission of 20 pages, all, all justifying downsizing Australia Post and scrapping the community service obligation. And That's what these Woolworths, Bank and Nab, Nab, McDonald's executives at Australia Post want. Which was also you know, drawn on CS First Boston's report. Boston Consulting uh, Group. Sorry, Boston Consulting yep. Group, I think, yeah. Because that's what the government wanted, right? This is what got Christine Holgate in trouble. She got in, Boston Consulting Group had demanded this when she was CEO and she said no, yeah. right? And that's, that's one of the reasons she was forced out. So um, they put in a 20, Australia Post puts in a 20-page submission saying this is what we want. We're going to reduce the business. Christine Holgate put in a 120-page submission. It's none of her business anymore. She's the former CEO saying there's something dodgy in the books here and she, she actually expressed a suspicion in that submission that the parcels delivery that Australia Post wants to do entirely because it's profitable is actually being subsidised by the letters. That's why the letters are being made to carry losses that are unfair. She would have a better insight into that than almost any other person in Australia. That's what she put in her submission to the Modernisation Review. And then she made two points. She said, look, there's an opportunity here for Australia Post. And she mentioned two things Australia Post could do to expand its revenue. One is her pet theme of expanding financial services. And she pointed out that of the top five post offices in the world, as measured by the United um, Postal Union, 
They all provide expanded social service, financial services far beyond what Australia Post does. And of course, that means they're competitors to the banks and the banks don't like that. But that was her first point. Australia Post should be doing that. And her second point, she has an ulterior motive because she's now the head of a competitor to Australia Post, which does parcels. But she didn't, that wasn't her choice. They turfed her out. This competitor snapped her up. Her alternative, her, 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 her proposal is Australia Post should share its last mile delivery monopoly, basically, right, with other parcel delivery services. And she points out these same top five postal services around the world all do that. They all share the last mile with private competitors. Now, you can say, well, that's just Christine Holgate, um, uh, you know, promoting her own business, and that's what people are saying. But at the end of the day, it comes with revenue. She's offering revenue to Australia Post to do this, revenue which she insists should be shared with the licensed post officers who run the small businesses, right? And she points to the fact, like I said, that the top five around the world do this, right? This is not just her talking her own interests. She's genuinely, I can tell you now, she, she holds the welfare of the licensed post office group, post offices close to her heart, right? She's, she's taking more care for this service than anybody else in Australia, even though she was turfed out. And that is something that people should really pay attention to. Anyway, that I, I, I consider part of the fight back, Craig, because now I just want to pay... Um, uh, uh, you know we're, we're we're fighting for the solution for this, but let's let's give let's look at some other examples of of the different forms of fight back happening in Australia right now. Um, first of all, uh, a lot of this comes back to the banks, as I was ranting and raving about before. It's the banks, and it's also the banks that have that have you know um, that we think were behind the forcing out of Christine Holgate. Well, something happened in Parliament this week that I want people to know about because last December the Greens had a deal with the Labor government to pass this. Yeah. Thing, bill called the Financial Accountability Re, um, Regime. And the Greens wanted the bill to include what the Royal Commission recommended, that if a bank is guilty of wrongdoing, it's not just the bank that's fined, which means the shareholders pay, but the executives who made the decisions are personally fined millions of dollars because these are highly paid executives, million-dollar fines for them. Wouldn't look good on their CV when they tried to move back. Absolutely wouldn't look good on their CV. So last November, the Greens had a deal with Labor to actually do this. The next day, Labor reneged on the deal because Anna Bly from the Banking Association got on the phone and demanded they drop it, and they did, because the bankers run this country. So Nick McKim, the, the bill was going through this week. So Senator Nick McKim got up and moved um, 17 amendments to put it back in, knowing they wouldn't pass. But he moved them anyway, just to make a point. And he made, he gave this, this is a little bit of the speech he gave when he did it. This, colleagues, is the modern Labor Party in a nutshell. Now, I don't have high expectations of the Liberal Party. I fully expect them to come in here and do the bidding of the big corporations. But, you know, maybe I'm naive, but I actually do expect the Labor Party to be better than this. And it is an absolute travesty, an absolute travesty, that Labor in government has walked away from the position it held in opposition, which was to support million-dollar fines for dodgy bankers, has now walked away from that because the bank executives have signed over massive political donations to the Labor Party, which didn't even come out of their pocket, came out of their shareholders', their shareholders pockets. That is the modern-day Australia Labor Party in a nutshell. 
pulling all the moves in opposition and then folding like a pack of cheap cards to their corporate masters when they're engaged. So this was in principle. Now what we're going to, I'm going to play the video of the actual vote because I want people to see this because something quite extraordinary happened actually. Um, when you see... When you see the video, this is a boring thing, but I want you to look at the moving parts. And this is, this is the Senate having a division for the vote on these amendments, right? They're voting on the amendments. And on the right, Labor and Liberals sitting together, the parties that bow the knee to the banks. And on the left, it's all the crossbenchers, all of them, including the United Australia Party, Ralph Babbitt, um, I'm pleasantly surprised, was on there as well. All the crossbenchers voted against the banks, voted for this reasonable thing of civil penalties. And then look who comes in the door and walks across the other side. A Liberal senator, the, the, the one and only Jared Rennick, voted against his own party on this. And if you see, as he's moving through, Craig, you can see Nick McKim looking at him and is really pleasantly surprised um, that, 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 sh that should actually be in headlines in all the major papers, right? Oh, yeah. uh, but why, and here's my question, why is a, Jared Rennick is a Queensland Liberal, has a whole bunch of other Queensland Liberals, but Anna Bly is the former Queensland Labor Premier, they all hate her. Why are all these Queensland and Australian Liberals doing the bidding of Anna Bly in the Senate, the only one who isn't? is Senator Jared Rennie, right? So that's part of the fight back though. I mean, this is, there's, there's, a, there's a rebellion here. Um, and the other part, which we don't have time to go into great detail, is we put out a, um, an update this week. We emailed to the every council in Australia. 4,000 councillors got an email from me on behalf of the Citizens Party updating them on the fight for a postal, public postal bank and against bank branch closures. We now have 17 councils that have passed. We, we've got, just got notified now. The 17th council has, has passed... Um, uh, a, a resolution endorsing the postal bank. The, the Tamora is the latest one in New South Wales, and it's all over the, the local Tamora press there. Um, also, there's 13 councils that cover towns where NAB is closing their, their bank, right? And those councils have been in touch with us. They're, in, they're talking about getting together and putting up a united front against NAB. And this is huge because this, this has the potential to really spread. And th that's... That's part and parcel of the rebellion as well, right? And the thing is, what those councils are doing to save their bank branches by supporting a postal bank is also going to be what saves Australia Post if we can do it. Yeah. Because you'll have the biggest injection of revenue Australia Post has ever had if it's the host of a dedicated postal bank, and that's going to change around its fortunes as well. We can save financial and postal services in Australia and keep the economic fabric together rather than letting these corporations um, tear it up. What the, uh, the banks are doing, Robbie, is creating a, uh, a tsunami effect, a political tsunami effect. All these things, they say, oh, they'll get a... Their arrogance is such that they can get away with this, they think. Yep. But if you notice a tsunami in the middle of the ocean, it's a mainly, mainly only six inches or... You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, 150, you know, 300 millimetres tall. If you're in the middle of the ocean, you would, it would feel like it, a swell. You would notice it. A bit, of a, bit it. of a bump. You might yeah, even yeah. notice it, right? 
But the enormous power when behind land, that yeah. when it hits land is just devastating, as yeah. we've seen before. Yeah. That's the power that's building up in yeah. the Australian community against the banks, and they're completely ignorant of it, Robbie. Yep. All right. Um, so, Craig, let's move on in the time we've got left. All the war party can do is lie. And I just want to give people, this is from the Australian media, I just want to give some people some examples of this because it's, it's the sort of stuff that when you're consuming the media and they're talking about this issue of war and China and all that kind of stuff, the, the, the players get away with just saying things that are completely factually untrue and most people aren't qualified to know they're untrue and they're never challenged, right? I just want to give a couple of examples. Last Sunday, 60 Minutes did an ad for AUKUS submarines. It was an ad, all right, boy. A massive ad. Now, 60 you Minutes... You almost want to buy one, Robbie. 60 <laughs> Minutes is, the, is, is nine, right? The nine group has jumped into bed with the Murdoch media as the war me- media in Australia, right? These people want us to go to war. Peter Costello is the chairman. Costello, Costello is intimately tied in with these people that run this thing called the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue. That leadership dialogue has, for 30 years, has brainwashed the politicians in Australia to be loyal to the United States over Australia, right? I absolutely, I'm, that is what they are. And, and, you know, go look on their um, website at their gallery and all the, the regular events they have. Um, uh, anyway, so Channel 9 did one of its China things again, and this time it was an ad for the Orca submarine. So we're going to spend $368 billion. We may as well see what we're getting for the money. We we'll justify our decisions. Here's a little clip, though. Just a, this is a tiny fraction of a clip. Listen to this United States submarine commander on one of these Virginia-class submarines describing what he's doing on the high seas. Uh, certainly it's an ever-changing world uh, right now, but our job is to keep the, the ocean free and open for everyone who wishes to sail, uh, and of course with international law. Yeah, Craig, before I, what I found funny before I t- talk about what he said, that Channel 9 uh, reporter... How did she get on there? Well, not only did she get on, she stayed, apparently she was on the boat for a few days, oh. right? I'm thinking, whoa... What sort of? I mean, these things are supposedly the most lethal machines ever, ever um, invented, right? You would think they'd have some kind of uh, care for security if that's so. No, let, let a reporter and the camera crew in there for a few days. You know, joined, um, she had to, she had to bunk in with the few. The th- I think there's three girls on that particular sub. She had to bunk in with them. Anyway, here's the point I want to make. That guy just said what he's doing there is enforcing international law of freedom of the seas. Look, that in, that international law has a name. It's called UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And yeah, that law, which all the countries of the world agreed to, decades of negotiation, they agreed to this law. That's the international law governing that. His country doesn't recognise it. The United States does not recognise that law. China recognises that law. China's a signatory and ratified it. Now, some one American administration did sign the law, but they haven't ratified it. Because the US political system does not recognise that law. They don't recognise the law, but they self-style themselves as the enforcer of that law. Now, we'll talk in, now we're going to go to this ridiculous extension of that, which is, what are they, what are they enforcing this freedom against? Right? Who, who's the threat to the so-called freedom of navigation they're forcing against? So I want to play, and I'm going to play... Um, uh, uh, I'm going to play two clips here, and they are of an interview a couple of days ago on Sky News between Tom Connell of Sky News and um, Senator James Patterson. And Senator James Patterson is the chief war hawk in Parliament, right? He's the guy that wants you to think that 
everything Chinese made is spying on you, and he gets always he goes to he gets paid trips by the military industrial complex to go to America and get all their latest guff and come back here and grandstand in in Senate inquiries about it. And he's a young punk. He's in his he's in his mid thirties, but he's the guy that when Andrew Hastie was was promoted to a minister, it was James Patterson who took over as the chair of the um, the Joint Committee on on um, uh, Security and Intelligence, even though uh, 35-year-old James Patterson took over that job, even though he's, he's an ideologue from the IPA, one of these apparatchiks of economic rationalism and, and neoliberalism you talked about, has no, no, no experience of absolutely anything except what he's been brainwashed in. And in Parliament, you've got one of the most experienced, honest, moral intelligence professionals in Australian history, Andrew Wilkie, who should be chairing that inquiry, and they won't let him within a bull's roar of the place, right? Because he's the guy who quit over the lies of the Iraq war. They want the next perpetrators of the next lies of the next war to be in that position instead. So what, what I particularly disliked about this particular interview is Tom Connell prizes himself on being this really, he's a young guy as well, but if he was interviewing, say, someone like Jared Rennick on this show on something like climate change, he would have this ammunition a mile long to make Jared Rennick look like he's a fool, right? That's, Tom Connor likes doing that. He gets these politicians there that he wants to make an issue against, and he, and, he, and he tries to, and he says, what about this, what about that, what about the other? So I'm watching this interview, and I'm thinking, where's your whatabouts, Tom? Because the two things I want to highlight is just these two, where Patterson says something, and Tom just lets it go through to the keeper. The first one is just play this, just um, uh, just play this clip where uh, uh, Patterson talks about the importance of our trade. We'll just play that. I should say up front, Tom. I haven't read Sam Rogerbein's full book, but I've read the ex- excerpts, and so I want to be fair to him in, in, in disclosing yeah. that. Um, and I also want to say, in a liberal democracy, dissenting and contrarian points of view on any public policy issue is a welcome and healthy thing. We should be testing robustly our ideas, but particularly on national security, where these are enormously consequential long-term decisions with a lot of money involved. Having said that, I profoundly and completely disagree with Sam's analysis here, um, particularly his contention that essentially Australia doesn't have an interest in being out of project power at distance and at, uh, at long uh, time scales. When and all we should be focused on is defending our continent and defending Australia. Um, I think that fundamentally misunderstands the national security threats that we face in a modern era. You can do enormous harm to a country without coming anywhere near them. I, I agree the prospect of the Australian mainland being invaded by any foreign force mm. is extremely remote, and therefore to plan your whole defence strategy around that contingency and not the much more likely ones, which is our seaborne trade being threatened, for example, I think will be really, really misguided and we would regret it. Right, so you think this is talking more about the catastrophic rather than the more likely lower-level elements for which nuclear submarines could be more of a, a factor? How would they play out in that seaborne trade yeah. you're talking about? What's, what's the scenario you're talking about? What AUKUS recognises is that Australia has very clear national interest in maintaining the peaceful status quo in the Indo-Pacific region, but particularly in the South China Sea, the East China, East China Sea and the Taiwan Straits. Um, by some measures, over half of our seaborne trade comes through those uh, those ports and that, that region. And there are a number of really key choke points between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean around the Straits of Malacca and, and other areas where, for example, about 90% of Australia's uh, oil, uh, refined oil comes out, petrol and, and diesel. And a power that was able to completely dominate that region 
to the exclusion of all others that change that from international waterways to effectively a, a lake around, you know, the People's Republic of China would be able to do enormous harm to our economy and our society without coming anywhere near us. Shutting that down would have really profound consequences. What Tom Connell or Patterson do not say in this clip. So they're talking about this, you know, the South China Sea is strategically important. That's where our trade goes through. They don't even bother to mention in passing the tiny paradox that the trade that's going through the South China Sea, which we must protect, is mostly with who? Who are we, who are we protecting that trade from? China. Who is that trade with? China. And I want to play this. Um, anyway, I'm gonna. I'll hold that back till the end. I want to finish on that. Um, if that was a one-off, if it was to, if it was Tom Connell going, you know, just like forgetting to make that point or whatever, I'd give him a pass. But in the interview, it wasn't a one-off. So I wanted to see. Look at this. Look at this answer that Patterson gave to Tom Connell's question about whether um, the U.S. really is committed to this this part of the world um, or whether it's in danger of leaving. And James Patterson answers it this way. Or do you make it a contention, though, that while we're allies, we're not in the same boat at all, that even if you know, China becomes the behemoth, the U.S. isn't actually threatened by it. They're, they're way too big. You know, they're a porcupine already mm. or an echidna, as Sam Australianised it. And perhaps we need to have more of a focus on that because if the U.S. loses some focus in our region, um, it's still going to be fine. We might not be. Is that a, a fair enough thing to think about? That's only if you define American interests really very, very narrowly, which is can we defend our continent? Well, of course they can. No one's suggesting any alternative. But the United States hasn't thought about the world since that since the 1930s in that way. And with good reason, they changed their approach in the 1930s and 1940s because they recognised how disastrous it was for their broader interests, mm. the interests of their citizens and their country globally, if they just retreat into themselves. And I think the prospects of them uh, retreating in that way again are very remote. Not impossible, but very remote. Is, is the trend the worry, though? I mean, Joe Biden not attending ASEAN, for example, it's actions versus words. Uh, well, I mean, front. It, uh, no, I, I'm not at all concerned about that. I mean, if you look at this, the United States' engagement with Australia as just one example, their investment in hardening our northern bases, the rotational forces of Marines in Darwin, the rotational submarine forces in Western Australia. They are very committed to this region. And in fact, the opposite has happened under the Biden administration. As we've discussed before, President Biden has now said four times that the, mili- the US would engage militarily if China tried to change the peaceful status quo across the Taiwan Straits by force. Now, that is the clearest declaration any US president has made about their engagement in that particular security issue in Asia. Now, Craig, so he cites the fact that Biden has said four times, we will fight to defend Taiwan. But even Tom Connell, now Patterson knows, and Tom Connell definitely knows, that every time Biden has said that in the last two years, the White House has scrambled immediately to walk it back. Mm -hmm. Because America has a policy called strategic ambiguity, which means it doesn't say if it will defend Taiwan or not. It's strategically, it's deliberately strategically ambiguous. But because Biden is a geriatric numbskull now, losing his marbles, right, he cannot maintain that in public. So he says all this garbage. The first time he said it was to Albanese, the first time we met him in Japan, right? And he makes, oh yeah, we're going to defend Taiwan. And straight away, the White House has to walk it back. Both of those guys know that. But it's inconvenient for what they want to say in that conversation. So just say the lie. Don't challenge the lie. And... That's the way this war party actually lies. So 
But let's finish on this whole idea of us having to spend $368 billion to, to defend our trade routes from China, even though the trade is with China, was skewered, absolutely skewered, quite a few years ago now in the TV show Utopia. And we don't, people, we don't play it enough. I'm not even sure we've even played it on this show before, but people might have seen this clip. What's this clip? Utopia did this scene, and if you, you know, if you watch Utopia, you, you know this is a typical Utopia exercise. Um, in the absurdity, it's the it's the yes minister of Australia, right? Mm-hmm. Utopia is the yes minister of Australia. In the absurdity of, of bureaucratic thinking, what's this scene? They took it to task back then, and nothing, and never a truer clip has been aired on Australian television. I thought the best way to proceed was to get everyone in the one room. Good thinking. Okay, you're all right. I'll come straight to the point. This white paper is recommending we spend close to $400 billion over the forward estimates. Now, at some point, the PM is going to be asked a very simple question. In order to protect us from which enemy? Hmm. It's so hard to say. $400 billion, pick one. A regional player. Specifically, Colonel. An Indo-Pacific regional player. More specifically? Indo-Asia-Pacific. That's broader. Who are you leaving out? Europe? Yeah, I sort of need a country. Or an unaligned player. No, a country. One that might threaten us. Just one. Yeah. I wouldn't want to raise tensions. Where? In this room. You know what? I'll name one and you just nod. China. Yeah? Okay. And what exactly are we protecting? Strategic interests. Specifically, Colonel. Indo-Pacific strategic interests. Really specifically. Indo-Asia-Pacific strategic interests. You know what? I'll say it and then you nod. Our trade routes. Yeah? And who is our number one trading partner? Shall we use an odd system? Sure. China? Yeah. So under this scenario, we're spending close to $30 billion a year to protect our trade with China from China. And that doesn't strike anyone at this table as odd? So there you go, Craig. Yeah. We're, that's, that's the absurd world in which we're stuck. And it is absurd, but well, um, think, we shouldn't think, laugh at it because we're heading to war. No, but yeah, I know, Robin, that's, that's what I was about to say. Look, when you look at all the other uh, institutions in this country, we represent the only party that's on the front foot fighting against this, taking new initiatives across, you know, the whole Australia Post fight. We're on the record with that. The, the whole shutdown of post offices the fight for a Commonwealth and a new national bank, dealing with the underlying axioms that I started talking about in the show when we first started, that you have a whole generation that have no clue, and that's why you get this incredible nastiness and this stupidity, is because when you talk about policy for a country, you have to have a starting point. What is that starting point? If it's self-interest, if it's mega-profits, then you're gonna, you don't care how much you're going to destroy other people. But if you start from the point of the idea of the general welfare and the common good as a principle, which is what we start from, then you start to say, well, what is the best thing for our people, not from a corporate perspective, not through the eyes of a more society, but, but through the eyes of people like John Curtin and Ben Chifley and the old Labor Party that we talk about a lot, yep. then you start to see that there's an entire different policy matrix that can build an entire different economic fabric that isn't built upon what people are getting very scared and very disturbed about now 
and you know, come home to hit you having to find another property. And you know, you're looking at a two hundred to three hundred dollar a week increase in rent. I mean, that's and that's not just because uh, that that's not also because of the fact, <laughs> yeah, not a yuppie, yeah. But the the fact is, you've got landlords out there that would happily rent properties, mm. make a living out of renting properties. Now being hit by incredibly increased insurance costs. Yep. If they've got mortgages on those properties, the increase in interest rates, land tax fees, all sorts of different things, which means that they don't necessarily want to increase rents, but they're forced into that situation. So this and, is and all the big one, of course, is interest rate rises. Yeah, and they uh, this is this is the difference in economic policy between what we represent and we need. You know, this is what we exist for. We've got a mass of people behind us. We need support because. You know, you're about to go down as part of our, uh, you know, next intervention. Very shortly, you're going to be going down to Tasmania to Launceston, then up to Canberra, and then to the Juni, the famous Juni. Yep. Right, and we're going to be present at all these different places, in a sense, giving people a bigger picture of what's possible in this fight to first of all stop regional branch closures in the banks, but also to promote. The yep. need for a, the a solutions are there. We've got a, we've got a beautiful solution on the table that'll save two essential services at the stroke of a pen. Banking and and um, postal services. So yeah, you're right, Craig. Um, Glenn Ishwood and I will be in Launceston on the 19th of September for the hearing there. Then the next day we're flying to Canberra for the Canberra hearing on the 20th, and then the, on the 21st of September the hearing will be in Juni, as it should be the town that did the most to start this um, inquiry in the first place. So if you're in the vicinity of those places, um, you know, you find out. You know, look around for the details. The, I can't tell you where the venues are at the moment. We'll, we'll publicise them when they're put on the Parliament's website. Um, but if you've got, you know, if you want to come along, save the dates and, and uh, come and rock up to the hearings. And look, if you can't do anything else except watch this show, there is one thing you can do, and that is contribute financially. Whatever dollar you spend towards us goes exactly to putting you on a plane. We don't, you know, we we, we spend every single thing in the promotion of our aims. So if you can't do anything else but donate, then please just do that. All right. And for the record, I've hardly flown Qantas lately, so I'm not <laughs> to blame for their $2.5 billion profit. I've been flying Rex, and it's a, I found it a pretty good airline yeah, they have, for now. They, have a, they actually have a service obligation that they t- treat seriously, Robbie. They do. Okay. All right, Craig, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks to the viewer for joining us as well and everything you've been able to do to help, and we can do more to help. And thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.